1812, I think it was, uh, as the ship was floundering and going down, the band disbanded and they were told to go get into a lifeboat and the chief uh, violinist didn't go. He came back and he started to play uh, and they played two songs. One was Nearer My God to Thee and the other was Near the Cross. And he started playing by himself and all the other musicians came back and uh, uh, stayed and played to calm the people and uh, they all died. In fact, if you go to Branson, there's a Titanic museum down there. That guy's violin was found on his body floating and uh, it's now in a museum down there. It was given to him by his girlfriend. So uh, it's a, you know, it was a great thing. I'd just tell you, if I was on a Titanic and you were singing, I wouldn't get on a lifeboat. I'd just sit there and listen to you. <laughs> but anyway, just a little trivia, you know. Now, last week, we again uh, looked at a great story of a well, didn't we? And we've been focusing on that. We've been talking about Jacob's well uh, out of John chapter 4. And uh, last week, we saw the Old Testament story on the same well. And we made the parallel, how I laid it out for you, Genesis chapter 29 and John chapter 4, how that these two stories will actually mesh together, even though they're about 1,800 years apart when things take place. And uh, one in the Old Testament really unlocks the deeper things of the New Testament in John chapter 4. And, uh, you know, all through I showed you how that it's the key words and the phrases that will unlock not only this story, but all the Bible for us, laying out for us how God used the Word of God uh, in the Old Testament to take the ministry of God's people to the world uh, through the nation of Israel, and then how it all changed. And what we're seeing in John chapter 4, as actually, even nobody knew it at the time, is the beginning of the changeover. And how that God now is going to fulfill all the law on the cross. And he's going to establish the New Testament church through the word of God. And this is a great picture. We saw from Genesis chapter 29 the well, Jacob's well. Same well as in John 4. And I showed you that there were three flocks of sheep. And I showed you how that they are, are pictures of the Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And all the world is overrun with them. Uh, the stone on the mouth of the well. And I showed you how that's a picture of Christ. Rachel shows up. She's a type of the nation of Israel. And uh, then they roll the rock off again. And this time all three flocks come together as one. And they get watered and fed. And I showed you how that was a picture of the New Testament that the Jew and the Gentile uh, all in one body. We saw some really key phrases. First of all, the sixth hour. Uh, in John chapter 4, connecting it to the crucifixion. Then we saw the woman of Samaria. Uh, Samarian was a half Jew, half Gentile, picture of you and me in the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile in one body. The high day, that goes back to John chapter 19, where when Christ was crucified, there was two Sabbaths that, that weekend, and uh, it was he crucified on a high day. That solves the problem of Good Friday versus Bad Wednesday. And then we saw the phrase, his place, back in Genesis chapter 29 all showing you how, as we did last week, that we connected all of that together and showed you how that it all, uh, one really illuminates the other. Now today, we're going to look at one more time at this story, and I know you're probably getting sick of it. We've read this long passage here three or four times now. And now, today, we're going to do a little study 
uh, on a little deeper on this well. And we're going to see now one of the greatest stories in the Bible that really portrays God's salvation to mankind through the well. So bear with me here. I'm going to read John chapter 4 again, uh, 29 verses, and then we'll, we'll begin to start. It says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must need to go through Samaria. Then cometh he to the city of Samaria, which is called Shikar, uh, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There it is. And there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samarians. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who is it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well, and drank thereof himself? Uh, that's Genesis 29 last week. And his children and his cattle. Uh, uh, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be uh, in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go and call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast is not thy husband, uh, now hast is not thy husband, uh, and that sayest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. The father, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place that, where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye shall ye worship and know not what. Ye know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto you am he. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he's talked with a woman. Yet no man said, Why uh, seekest thou or why talkest thou with her? And the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith unto the men, Come to see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for the folks that have gathered today, not only down here but upstairs, and not only on here but on the YouTube today. 
pray your blessings upon it as we look at this great story and uh, glean from it, Lord, some things that, that we need to see. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I know you probably know this already, but in your Bible, there are some great stories that represent in picture form or in type form, you know, God's salvation that we all have today. I think the first one that you find in the Bible that is a great story is the story of Adam and Eve. And you know, Adam and Eve, God created them without any sin, but they had, they had a, a free will that they could choose. And, you know, they, uh, they weren't afraid to be naked before that. They lived in a perfect world and a perfect society with perfect animals. And when they took of the forbidden fruit, everything changed. Not only did it bring a curse on them, but it brought a curse on the earth. And what you see today with all of the issues that we have in our, uh, you know, in our world that goes back to man disobeying God. And, and along with that is why when we're born into this world, we're born as sinners. And you know the story. God came down and he realized now that they were, they were in a fallen state. And there was nothing that they could do to undo that fallen state. So what did God do? He came down and he killed a couple of animals. And from their skin, he made them what the Bible calls over there in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, garments of salvation. And he covered their naked. That's an incredible story. Because that's the problem with us. We are in Adam's fallen nature before we got saved. And you need a covering. And that covering needs to be through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. So that's a great picture. I've taught you before uh, at Exodus chapter 12, the gospel according to Exodus. How that they came out of Egypt, the children of Israel. And they only came out after they put the blood on the door. They took a lamb and they killed that lamb. They put the blood on the door. And they get out of Egypt. And Egypt's a picture of the world. The blood on the door is a picture of Christ dying on the cross. And when you put the blood on you, you get out of the world. It's an incredible picture. I like, uh, I like the story back in 2 Kings 4 about the Shumanite woman and her son. That's an incredible story about salvation and how salvation really works. Uh, another favorite of mine is in 2 Kings chapter 5 where you have Naaman. And Naaman is the captain of a, uh, the, uh, the host of Syria. He's a great military man. But the Bible says that he was a great military man, won many, battle, many, many battles. Yeah, here it comes. But he was a leper. Leprosy in the Bible is a picture of sin. And that story is showing us no matter how great he was, he still was a leper. And he had to follow what Jesus told him to do exactly the way that Jesus told him in the place that Jesus told him. And you know what? He got clean. It's a picture of salvation. Great story. All kinds of them in the Bible. You know, we already studied John chapter 3 and and made the inspirational application and showed you how Nicodemus, uh, in Acts chapter 8, you got the Ethiopian eunuch, how he gets saved with Philip. And then you got uh, over in Acts chapter 16, you have the great story, the Philippian jailer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, of course, you know, that is, uh, that's a great story. Acts chapter 9, you have Paul's conversion. And boy, that's a great story to study. And then, you know, we, we come to John chapter 4, where we're at here. And, and there's many, many of them, many of them. And uh, when we come to John chapter 4, and now we're going to look at this woman getting saved. There's, there's more here than you hear from just most of your sermons from guys. 
that talk about the woman at the well, you know, and, uh, you know, she finds Jesus and she gets water and she gets everlasting life. And it's, they make great sermons. They really do. But like everything else in the Bible, there's a lot more here. And I want to do that today. We're going to put our trained eyeglasses on today and we're going to look at this from our trained eyesight like I've tried to teach you to do. We're going to see what in this chapter what we got. And actually what we have are nine absolute principles about our salvation. Every aspect of it. This is a lot like John uh, or Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, I've always told people this when I preach that, that is the first place in your Bible, the Ethiopian eunuch, that is the first place in your Bible where a man gets saved exactly like you and I get saved, and yet it's almost like God takes the TV cameras of heaven and takes us right down inside and see every aspect of it. Okay, this story is a lot like that, but from a different angle. Now we're going to see not Philip dealing with the Ethiopian the eunuch and the questions he asked. Now we're going to see what God looks for when he starts to deal with man. We're going to see, as they would say down at the Mexican restaurant, the whole enchilada. We're going to see it in its entirety. Now, before I get into these nine things, I want you to see this. Now, I don't know how you look at the Bible. I, I try to get you to, I use the quick phrase, the trained eye. I try to get you and train you to look for things in the Bible because that's how you learn it. And, and, I, and some of it, I, I, I really wouldn't expect you maybe. Uh, some of you I would, uh, but most of you, you know, you're, you're learning the process. I get that. But when we came through the first three chapters of John, I, I didn't say anything about it because I was waiting to get here. But what you see in John chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 is a picture of what we have in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says there, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in both Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, the church is to be God's witness. And it starts, he tells us here, in Jerusalem. And then it goes to uh, Judea. And then it goes to Samaria. And then it moves out from the, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, the trained eye will observe in the first four chapters here. <coughs> in John chapter 2, verse 23, they're at Jerusalem. In John chapter 3, verse 22, they've moved into Judea. Now in John chapter 4, they're in Samaria. You see the progression of that thing? And when Christ goes to the cross, and all of this is fulfilled about the Spirit of God coming that He's saying to her, it's going to go to the end of the world. You see those kind of things by looking for them. You don't just get in a hurry when it comes to the Bible. You, you take your time. You know a lot about the Bible. You have the keys in the back of your mind, and you use them. And what follows here, once we get into John chapter 4, will be a picture of our witness starting in Jerusalem, going to Judea, here in John 4 in Samaria, and very quickly to the ends of the earth. 
Now, God, obviously, there's no question about this. God wants all men to be saved. We talked about on Thursday night a great question that I love when it pops up because, you know, on predestination and the Calvinist crowd. And Sean, who actually asked that question for somebody that he's dealing with, thanked me for that. And I told him, you don't need to thank me for that. I always will take any opportunity to beat up a Calvinist. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's a, it's, it's, heresies uh, do more damage uh, than you could ever shake a stick at when it comes to God's people. Most of Jehovah Witnesses, most people don't know that. Jehovah Witnesses are a cult. Uh, but most of, and they're dying and going to hell. Because they say, I know they say there is no hell, but they'll get there. They'll figure it out. <laughs> but you realize that the statistics tell us that most of the Jehovah Witnesses, a great percentage of them, are probably saved people. And they're not saved people because they believe what the Jehovah Witnesses taught. Most of them were Baptist at one time. I mean, I've dealt with them all my life. And boy, I don't care how many times somebody says, well, I used to go to a Baptist church. And most of them went to a Baptist church, probably got saved, but the Baptist church never, never helped them grow. So they go to work someday, and hey, you know, or they answer their door, and you know what happens. Those Jehovah Witnesses, they work the field, man. And uh, they start coming after them, and they don't know anything about the Bible, so they get sucked into it, and there they are. I mean, so I, I don't have any mercy on the cults. Maybe you do. And, uh, you know, and it's a thing where uh, there's too many souls at stake. And so it's a thing where, you know, you, you, you have to deal with that. But he wants all men to be saved. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See? And then verse 17 says that he sent his son not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Everybody, Christ died for everybody. This idea that, uh, you know, Jesus loves me, sorry about you, you're not one of the chosen few. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. He died for everybody. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that promise, he said there, is found in Titus chapter 1, verses 2, where it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the foundation of the world. And I've told you many, many times, you know, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, the Bible says when God created hell, He didn't create it with man in mind. He created for a place for the devil and his angels. God never in his mind, never, never wanted any man that was of his creation to ever wind up in a lake of fire. They wind up there because they reject what God gave them and God says, well, I got no place else to put you. And that's where they go. And you know, and I also know this. God will use men today to get men and women saved. He'll use preachers. He'll use, he'll use Christians who witness. Uh, he'll use evangelists. He'll use anybody who is willing to be used. And, you know, I, I taught you before when we did a study on Acts chapter 8 that there's three parts to soul winning. And every Christian ought to understand what part you're in when you're talking to somebody. There's a, there's a sowing where you just, God, all he wants you to do is sow the word and put it out. And that's it. Shut up and go home. 
Then there is a watering, and that is that you're praying for somebody after you sowed it, and then there's a reaping. And sometimes when you sow, somebody else gets to reap. And most generally, when you win somebody to Christ, somebody else sowed, and you just get the privilege of reaping. You see, the problem is that so many of God's people today know nothing about the Holy Spirit of God in their life. All they want to do is be a soul winner. All they want to do is win people to Christ. And what happens is they wind up trying to reap when they should be just sowing. And it gets to be a confusing mess. You know, and it's a thing where I told you in Acts chapter 8 that God, in that story, you find coming out of that picture of salvation, that God had a prepared sinner. It was the Ethiopian eunuch. And then God had a prepared servant. That was Philip. (coughs) God was preparing that Ethiopian's heart. He's reading out of Isaiah 53, and yet we're not told where he ever got Isaiah 53, but he's got it. And Isaiah 53 is the crucifixion of Christ. And then he's got a prepared servant. That's Philip. And so out there in the middle of the desert, a picture of the world, he brings the prepared sinner and the prepared servant together through the leading of the Holy Spirit of God, (coughs) and Philip wins him to Christ. Now, you know what the problem in Christianity is today? I'm going to tell you. It's simple. The problem today is God's got more prepared sinners than he's got prepared servants. And that's a shame, but that's the way it is. And right now in this church, me and you and our relationship and all the things that we try to do together and all the things that I try to help you with, I'm trying to prepare you, get you ready that you can deal with any circumstance, situation that you came up with where God feels free to drop you in because you're a prepared servant and he can match you up with a prepared sinner and, uh, and you know the result. You get a chance to deal with that person and maybe win him to Christ or at least follow one of the three protocols that you have in soul winning. And all through the Bible, you're going to find that God has called men to be saved. From Genesis to Revolution. Revelation, excuse me. We went to talk to Adam, Genesis 3, 9. He's in a fallen state. He disobeyed God. God comes down. Adam and Eve hide from him. And what does he say? Adam, where art thou? You know, God's been saying to every unsaved man and woman all their life, asking them where they're at because they need Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. That's the first invitation in the Bible. You know what the last one is? It's in Revelation chapter 22. I mean, in Revelation chapter 22, he's laying out the new heavens and the new earth, and, oh, it's really getting moving on and going. But then it's almost like the Holy Spirit of God loves man so much that before he can close out his Bible, he's got to give one more invitation. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, he says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, let him that heareth say, Come, let him that is athirst, John 4, come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Right back to John chapter 4. And you know what? And in this story in John chapter 4, we're going to see how God, dealing with this woman who pictures any unsaved person, what God looks for, how God deals with them, and what that person has to come to terms with 
to truly be saved. Now, the first thing I want you to see is just very quickly go back to 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 9. And this is a lost doctrine today. When a man gets saved, he has to come unto, not Christ. You hear that taught all the time. Come unto Christ. If you're going to get saved, the first thing you have to come unto is not Christ. The next thing you have to not come unto is salvation. Let's read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not consacrating His promise, but long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Before you can ever get to God, you can ever get His salvation, you've got to come to repentance. And that is a lost doctrine today. I would dare to say that so many of God's people out there that call themselves soul winners, if they win somebody to Christ, they never bring up repentance. And I'm going to tell you right now, if a man is not willing to repent, then you're wasting your time. But we are so pressured today. And maybe it's an ego thing. I've seen guys and gals that, that their life was so messed up and everything about it, and they finally get saved and get right. And they, they, they want people to get saved so desperately, but they never take the time to really find out how to do it right. Now, let's look at our story here. Now, first off, this woman. As Nicodemus in John chapter 3 show us a great biblical principle found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, <coughs> verse 14. And that is that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. <coughs> this woman, as we saw it with Nicodemus, <coughs> he couldn't get it at all. <coughs> But an unsaved man, he cannot receive the things of God, neither can they know them, because he's lacking the key, and that is spiritual discernment. Now, this will go back to our lesson several weeks ago where I talked to you about God giving every man just a measure of faith and a measure of grace. And it takes both of them to be saved. And so God gives a man just enough of those two ingredients to be able to understand enough to get saved, but he doesn't know anything about the Bible. He, he doesn't, he can't, the moment he gets saved, he can't open up Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 and explain it. He can't go to Revelation chapter 22. He can't lay out the outline of the book of Acts. He can't go to 1 Corinthians. He can't do any of that because he has no discernment. But he's got what begins to be his discernment. And, uh, An unsaved man can not only not understand God and what he's doing, but Proverbs 28, 5 says he can't understand God's judgment. He doesn't understand. He, he, he struggles with the fact, well, how could a loving God put a man in hell? The same way a loving God could let his son go through hell for you. But see, he can't get that. No, I got it. You got that? Well, one or two of you got it. Do You got that? Amen. Well, thank you very much. But it's a, it's a thing where... You know, he, he can't, an unsaved man, he can't grasp that the choices that he's making or she's making are going to destroy their life. How many have had teenagers grow up and they get to that point in their life where you can't tell them anything? 
Now, obviously, that's a failure on your parenting skills, but the bottom line is this. <coughs> they don't think you know anything. Hey, I was the same way. When I was 17 and 18 years old, I used to knock heads with my dad. I used to think my dad was stupid and didn't know anything, and I knew it all. By the time I got out of the Army, I couldn't figure out how my dad got smart so fast. <laughs> you see? And an and unsaved man, he can't figure God out. He can't figure his Heavenly Father out. So he keeps making bad choices, bad circumstances, and many times they will destroy uh, his life. And, uh, and it's all because of what I said last week, that he's going through life or she's going through life like, like this woman here in John 4. They're, they're going through life. I mean, this woman, honestly, and, and I know this isn't part of the story, but once you know God and how he works, this woman just didn't get up that morning and be bopped to the well. She, she had been looking for something because the moment he says something, she's on it. But the problem is, as in every unsaved man or woman, she's looking in the wrong places. Now, allow me to say this. Now, I have been, up to this point, I've been talking about unsaved people, but I want you to understand that God's saved people will find themselves in the same boat if they don't let God develop grace and faith in their life. The only difference between many of God's people and many or most of unsaved people is the place they're going to spend eternity. One's going to heaven, the other one's going to hell. But in this life, it's a veil of tears, man. They make, both of them, saved and lost, make every bad choice they can make, every bad decision. And it all becomes that they never get any discernment that they could get, but they never grow. And it's because the Bible is light and an unsaved man is in total darkness. And the Bible is light and when you get saved, you get the light. But then some God's people just want to stay in darkness. Now, let's begin to look at these nine areas here. A complete understanding of salvation. Now, number one, we see the great commission in this woman's life that is about to unfold of the gospel going to the world. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but we are under a mandate as a body of believers. We have a commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You know, when I was growing up and I was just a young Christian in churches and I was still learning the ropes and everything, I grew up in a time where probably 99% of the pastors, and this is probably true, true today, it certainly is of the new evangelical crowd, uh, they, they, they thought that the great commission to the church was back there in Matthew chapter 28. And they focused everything they did and made that the Great Commission. And where it says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, if you don't know your Bible, that sounds really logical. But once you understand the Bible, and then as I grew in the Bible and I read Psalms 96, Psalm 93, 94, 95, 97, 98, 99, and all the way down the line, I saw that that was not true. That that commission there wasn't to the church. That's a millennial commission given to the nation of Israel. And because of that terrible mistake, it's led, and we talked about this Thursday night in somebody's question, it brought up the 
the horrendously bad teaching that the model church for you and for me is the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3. We saw it Thursday night in a question somebody asked, and I, 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 I'm telling you that that's just, you know, that's just, that's it's where it all gets messed up. You know, uh, they, they failed to see the breakdown of the book of Acts. They failed to see how that the model church for what you and I believe wasn't the church at Jerusalem, but rather the church of Antioch. You know, and maybe it's just me, but if I'm reading through the book of Acts and I'm looking to find where the real true church is and I know I'm a Christian, you know when I got to Acts chapter 11 and I read about the church of Antioch and it says they were first called Christians in Antioch, you know I'd stop and look at that? I think that might be significant. Maybe that is the model church where they're first called Christians. They weren't called Christians in Acts chapter uh, 2. There wasn't any Christians in Acts chapter 2. They're Jews. So I would think that if you're reading through that, and this is just me now, my trained eye would say, well, they're first called Christians in Antioch. What does that mean? It means that Antioch is the model church. And when you start coming through that, you'll find that uh, uh, in chapter 11 and chapter 13, you will find laid out for you what I call, we call the seven Baptist distinctives about what a Bible-believing church should be. They started right there. The first missionaries and the first Bible teachers came out of Antioch. They sent out the first missionaries to the world. The church of Jerusalem didn't. And then the second church that really meshes together will be in Acts chapter 20 where uh, Paul finishes his ministry before he goes down to Jerusalem and after church at Ephesus. And I, I, if you look on our chart over here, when we start church history, uh, right after the big three crosses there in red, you'll see the first church period is called Ephesus. You go to Revelation chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, when it lays out the church age, you'll find the church first starts at Ephesus. Now, maybe this is just me, but when I come to Acts chapter 20 and I saw that it starts at the church at Ephesus, I, I think that's probably where it started, with Antioch. And in church at Ephesus, when you start to study that, then you'll find six key areas that the church is supposed to focus on. So you take the church at Antioch and get those things, the church at Ephesus and get those things, and then you see the book of Acts and how it's coming through. That's my great commission. That's what I base what we do on. Headed to the Gentile world. Now, the second thing I want you to see, you've got to kind of get these things down before we look at him dealing with her, that we need to see where salvation comes from. This is called Jacob's well. And we know from John chapter 4, verse 22, uh, that uh, uh, salvation is of the Jew. You see, God's plan for salvation of mankind on planet Earth was just a basic, simple, twofold process. In the Old Testament, he wanted to do it through a nation. And that nation was a literal, physical nation that you can study its out beginning and bring it up to its, its greatest point and then watch how it destroys itself. And that nation is the nation of Israel. And then in the New Testament, it's the kingdom of God, and he wants to reach the world through a spiritual body, the body of Christ. And, you know, man all through history has had a quest for getting back to the garden, that perfect society where everything is just the way it should be, a paradise. That's why, you, that's why people like to go to Hawaii or go to the South Sea Islands, Tahiti, some of those places. There's a chain of islands down there that 
is was so beautiful and is such a perfect paradise that when the British went there back in the 1800s, you know what they called them? The Solomon Islands. Because in their minds, it represented the great millennium and the greatest time when Solomon ruled the earth. Perfect. It was perfect. And so man, you know, man, he... Uh, uh, he, 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 he's looking for that. That's why if a, a person is an amillennialist or a postmillennialist in that crowd, they're always trying to make things better. They think that we got problems in our world. Hello? <laughs> and they think the answer to killing people and crime is more education. Well, more education just gives them ways to, to, to better kill each other. I had a friend of mine that, that, uh, that had never been in trouble and he wound up going to jail and uh, he was there for a short time and when he came out, they, they, what, they're going to rehabilitate you. You know what he learned in jail? How to hotwire a car, how to unlock a door. That's what he learned. You see, it's a thing where more education don't do it because the problem we all got has nothing to do with how much you know or how much you don't know. Our problem is our heart. That's where it's got to start. You got to fix that, and of course, you know it's a thing where uh, they're just trying to make the place a better world. More social programs. You got problems with your kids, and you go down to the state gets involved, or the city DFS gets involved, or whatever. You know they want to put them into therapy. They want to put them here. They want to they want to sit down and find out what their favorite color is. They'll give them a blank sheet of paper and see what do you see. I had a guy do that to me one time. He says, well, I said, what do you see when you see this? It's a blank sheet of paper. And I said, I see a blank sheet of paper. He says, no, 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 what do you, I said, a blank sheet of paper. He says, you're not very creative in your thinking. I said, you give stupid tests. It's a blank sheet of paper. If you want me to make something up, it looks like your wife. Now, I don't even know what she looked like. Obviously, better than a blank sheet of paper. But everybody's trying, you know, every president we've ever had, they fall into this trap. They think all around the world, in the Middle East, in, you know, in, you know, in Vietnam, you know what they used to tell us? They used to say, you know, what are we fighting for? I'll tell you what we're fighting. I had a general one time. I, he, he was lecturing us, and he said, some of you boys want to know what we're fighting for. And he says, I'll tell you what we're fighting for because inside every Vietnamese, there's an American trying to get out. <laughs> but that's their mindset. We think that we have the greatest country on the world. Now, I'm not knocking the country. We have a lot of freedoms here. You better enjoy them because you won't have them for long. But, but this, this has been a great country. But it's been a great country not because... We have a great society called capitalism where you can have two chickens in every pot and three cars in your garage. This country is living on a residue that it was the greatest country outside of England in the history of the world that reverenced the Word of God. That's why. And, of course, we think that we can export democracy. You know, over back in the 90s when they had the war over there in uh, the first Gulf War, you know what American guys tried to did? This government actually went over there and built two or three American cities. Actually, it looked like Chicago, Warsaw, Missouri, or Kansas City. They left Raytown off the list. I'm not sure why. (laughs) 
but they, 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 they actually built them because they wanted those people to become little Americans. You know why missions has failed in Mexico and China and Japan? It's because missionaries go down to those cultures and they think that American Christianity and our culture is superior. So they go down there, they get in a little American compound with a little flag, they have a little lapel American friends, and they actually think they're going to reach those people. And of course, it's ridiculous. And that's, that's just, you know, that's just, that's just the way it is. I mean, salvation is of the Jew. If you want that peace that passes all understanding, uh, you're going to have to come and get it through the Word of God. I remember President Kennedy when he when he he got he did his famous speech at the Berlin Wall uh, back in the this is back in the '60s when he was president. He says, "At the end of the day, this is how he sounded. We all inhabit this small planet, and what we want is not just peace in our time." but we want peace for all time. Okay? These guys think they're bringing in the kingdom. They actually think they're going to get the world all cleaned up and then Christ is going to look over and say, okay, it's time to go back and thank guys for doing it. That's not the way it's going to work. When you have an old house that's eaten up with, with, with cockroaches and eaten up, uh, up with termites and the roof's falling off and the windows are falling off and it's desolate and derelict, uh, and yet you want to stay where you're at, and you're going to build a new house, you know what you do? You tear it down to the foundation, and then you rebuild again. And if you think God's Son is going to come back to this cockroach world with its termites, with its fallen-in roof, and build on that, you know what he's going to do? He's going to come down to the second coming of Christ. He's going to kick the snot out of everybody and clean it off to the foundation and build it right. That's what I'm looking for. So all this stuff you need to understand, if you're going to get it, and you're going to get the peace that this woman is looking for, it's going to have to come through God's process. The next thing, this, our woman here at the well, she'll be a picture of New Testament salvation for all of us. As I've told you this before, she's a Samaritan. Half Jew, half Gentile. I showed you last week, uh, how that happened back in the Old Testament, so you should have that now. And, uh, and uh, you know, we studied a while back God's master plan for eternity. And I laid out the seven members of God's family for you and around Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 about His eternal government. And the world basically is made up of two people groups, Jews and Gentiles. Now, after Christ died on the cross, there's the third one and that is Christianity. Because once you get saved, you're no longer a Jew, you're no longer a Gentile, you're now a new creature in Christ Jesus, and you're a Christian. And that's all you got. And you realize that God has a plan. It goes way beyond uh, Revelation chapter 22. It would be Revelation 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, and 29. You say, they're not in your Bible. Yeah, they are. You just don't know where to look for them. That Bible's a complete circle. When it ends in chapter 22, you've got to find where it started, where it picked off. And our woman here in type is a picture of the New Testament church age. It, remember now, it started in Jerusalem, and it went to Judea. Now we're in Samaria. The next step, Jew and Gentile, one body. 
Take it to the ends of the earth. The next thing. She desperately needs something that is real. That is so clear. Nothing so far has satisfied her. Now, you have got to get this one. Because you may be here in the same boat this morning. She desperately needs something that's real. Because in her life, nothing so far has satisfied her. We are told that she has had, she has went through five husbands, verse 11 through 14. And she's working on number six. Now, these five husbands, in our story, are five men that she uh, had in her life. But in a broader sense, it represents whatever we put in our life that we actually think is going to meet our needs but fails us. These five husbands in our story will just represent what an unsaved man does all of their life. And unfortunately, a lot of God's people. These five husbands will represent the wrong association that man puts in his life. It's a great illustration to make a, a, an important point. These five husbands represent the wrong relationships we get into. These five husbands will represent the wrong value system we put into our lives and the lives of our kids. I told the guys when they were here, they were talking about, we were driving around, you know, and we were talking about the mess that America's in. And, and you know, and, and I said, yeah, the best illustration I have is we have lost our value system. I was at Walmart, oh, a couple of months ago. I haven't been there for a while. You got to go between the shootings. <laughs> And I, I, <laughs> I, I was in there, and I was, and you know, people were everywhere. And I'm walking down here, you know, and the blue lights are going off for the specials. And I, and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be utter chaos if I snuck in here tonight and while nobody was here, changed all the price tags? And I took a coffee pot that sold for, you know, uh, uh, $19.00. And I looked at a 60-inch television that sold for $800, took that price tag off that and put it on, on the coffee deal and then put the $29.95 on the TV and just went through everything and took the things that really cost a lot and put it on the things of little value and then took the little value things and put it on the big things. It would be utter chaos the next morning when everybody came through. But you know what? That's exactly what the devil's done to this world. While we slept, he changed the value system of everything in this country, if not the world. And God's people today, and unsaved people, what you're willing to pay your whole life to is worth nothing. And the very thing that's worth everything, you're not willing to pay anything for it. How about your own commitment? That's the problem today. So these five husbands, they represent what she has been looking for. And for us, it represents what an unsaved man will put into his life to try to satisfy. He wants something lasting, but he looks in all the wrong places. So he gets wrong associations. He gets wrong relationships. He gets a wrong value system. So then he makes wrong investments. And then he, he launches into the wrong goals. And he usually winds up in the wrong place. 
And this woman with her five husbands, I know how she thought. She thought, well, maybe the next guy will be what I'm looking for. Well, maybe, maybe this guy, next guy will meet my needs. Maybe he'll be there. Maybe he, maybe, and you know what? She's looking in all the wrong places for something that will last. And the world today, it's simple. Maybe it's your world today. It's simple. If you're here this morning and you're disgruntled and you're not happy and you're struggling with all kinds of things in your life, I'll tell you right now, it's because you've been looking for the real thing in the wrong place. Somebody says, well, I don't like your church, I'm, but I'm miserable in life. Well, that's your problem. You know what? I'm, I'm happy as can be in this church. So the fact that you're not happy, what does that mean? Should I leave church and be unhappy like you? You see, it has to start on the inside. And none of these things will satisfy and they'll lead to more, deeper, bad choices that in time will destroy a person. You know, the thing in my gripe with most Baptist preachers is, truly evangelicals, all churches today for the most part. There are some really good ones out there, but boy, you got to look. I get calls all the time. Hey, I'm here. I'm here in this town, this state. You know any Bible-believing churches? I don't know of a one. But you know what my gripe is? And I was raised in it, so I have a right to gripe. I was raised in Baptist churches where the pastor got up there and preached, and he preached, and he preached, and he preached, and he always preached the same message. That is that you need to give up the world. You need to get saved, and you need to give up the world. You need to quit doing this, doing that, quit going to all these, and on and on and on. And then people would actually come forward and give it up. But he had nothing to replace it with. See, it's wrong for me to ask you to give up the world if I don't have something that's better than that to put into your life. And that's what this story is all about. He had something better. He had something better. And it's a thing where, you know, the fifth thing. Now, I love this. She wants God's salvation. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give them shall never thirst, but the water I give him shall be a well of water spring up. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. You see, she wants the water. But this is the great lesson. She wants the water, but, no, she has to deal with the issues in her life first. So what did Jesus say? Go call your husband. See, this is the great picture of people getting saved without facing their sin issues. And the average thing is, you know, you just, you know, in most churches, you know, at the end, uh, you just bow your head. If you want to pray this prayer, pray after me, and now you're saved. You see, the Bible's very clear that you have to see your sin first. When Paul laid it out in Romans chapter 7, verse 13, he, he clearly gave us a great picture of where he had come from, and he said that he was never saved till his sin became exceedingly sinful. He had to see that he was a sinner and had a personal sin debt for God. You see, and this is foreign to most people and what they say when they soul win. But I'm going to tell you right now, you don't get saved to fix your issues in life that you're messed up on. Say it again because you're going to sit there and say, I can't believe he said that. Okay, here it comes again. 
You don't get saved to fix your issues in life that you're messed up on. You get saved to fix you. And once you get you fixed, the rest of it will take care of itself. You see, salvation doesn't fix any outside issues, but it does fix you, and then it gives you the ability through the Word of God to fix any issue you may have in your life. I, I've seen people all the time, you know, heard them all my time. I cringe every time I hear it. Well, you get saved, it'll solve all your problems in life. Did it? Didn't solve all mine. It may have solved my eternal destiny, but I have to struggle with everything in life just like everybody else does, and you do too. It didn't take away all of that. See how dishonest we are? And other times we do that to trick people so they'll get saved. Because we live in a day and age that we want people to get saved so desperately, and I'm all for that, but we shortcut the process just so we can notch another notch on our pistol. Oh, I had nine people saved this week. I used to know guys that go around and say, how many did you have saved this week, brother? And like if you didn't have a bunch of them, you weren't spiritual. You guys are as phony as a $3 bill. I'd always say back, how many did you have saved, brother? Well, I had four. Wow, I had 29. <laughs> I didn't have any. But I know these guys, you see. It's all about... Soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, soul winning. But you don't even understand the basic fundamentals of it. And that's the world that we live in. Get them saved, and then we delude ourselves into thinking that they're truly saved. And I'll say it one more time. God is not willing that any man should perish, but all should come to what? Repentance. What? Repentance. One more time. What? Repentance. Repentance. You don't start there, you ain't start nowhere. When you got saved, if you truly got saved, and I'm not saying you didn't, I'm saying it fixes you. And at that point, you now have the ability to take the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and grow through every issue that you're going to have to face. Then the sixth thing, I love this. Oh, human nature kicks in. He says to her, go call thy husband. Go call your husband. And look what she does. She tries to sidestep the real issue of her salvation, her sins, and make it a religious issue. He just nailed her on her personal sin. Call your husband. And immediately she jumps to her nation's history about this well to avoid her personal issue. Well, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, I must have missed something here. I don't see anywhere in this story where he said that. You see, what happens is many times when God nails us between the eyes, we jump on another religious issue so we can sidestep the issue that we have to face. That's human nature. At its finest, when we're faced with God's salvation, I, how many times I've said to people, you need to be saved, pal, and God will save you. Well, I, uh, I don't think you need to go to church to be a Christian. You need to be saved. Too many hypocrites in the church. You need to be saved. What about the heathen in Africa? You need to be saved. I never killed anybody. You need to be saved. Can a murderer be really saved? 
You need to be saved. Well, I was baptized when I was a kid. Well, you need to be saved. Well, I was raised in church. You need to be saved. Well, I think you have need to have the right feeling, and I just don't have the right feeling. That's what they do. And you're going to start to deal with people that when you do that, like this case here, what a great study this is. And she, he, 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 she says, she, she tries to get him off track. You see, people want the water, but they don't want the accountability that's got to be put into it to get it. Welcome to Laodicean Christianity, salvation without a change of lifestyle. We want people to get saved, but we want to shortcut the process. Jesus never did. And then there's the seventh thing. Look at verse 21, 22, 23, 24. Here's where, after she sidesteps it, he keeps her honest. He brings her right back to the spiritual process. And Jesus saith unto the woman, Believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. He says, you want to bring up Jerusalem? I'm going to tell you something, sister. There's a time coming where Jerusalem won't do you any good. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for the salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is. What he's saying is Jerusalem isn't going to do you any good. That worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they which worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. See, he takes it right back from the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem and puts it right back in her lap. And he says, hey, sister, salvation is of the Jews. And yes, uh, you, you know, but forget it, because uh, the bottom line is uh, we're in a place now where you're going to have to worship him in spirit, your spirit and his truth. Jerusalem is not going to help you anymore. He says, the hour is come, and now is. That's his crucifixion. He's headed to the cross. And now we see salvation will be a personal in the New Testament for her moving forward. We're getting the picture now that salvation is going to be a personal thing between you and God. In the Old Testament, it was through a nation. But they didn't have what you have. They didn't have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling them. You have it. If you're saved this morning, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you right now. And up to this point, it all revolved around Jerusalem. But now it's going to change. In the church age, it will be a personal salvation dealing with a personal sin debt. And God becomes your personal Savior. And you have access to the throne of God any time. You don't need some priest helping you get there. You don't need a literal priesthood because the Bible says that you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 that you can go into that throne room boldly. Now the eighth thing. Look at 25, 26, 27, and 28. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell all things. Jesus saith unto her, that I speak unto thee, am he. And upon uh, this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, why seekest thou or why talkest to this woman? Now look at verse 28. And the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith unto the men. You see, she left her water pot. She got it. She got that symbolic. She got the spiritual water. She was never going to have to come back to that well again. But it's a better picture here, a greater picture here. 
the picture that I see out of this is now she is so excited about the true water that she just got, she forgot all about the water of the world, which could never satisfy. And I'm telling you right now, and the real evidence of my salvation, the real evidence of your salvation is leaving the things of the world behind. She got the true living water and she bolted out of there and never looked back for that physical pitcher that she had spent all of her life getting water that wouldn't satisfy. And I'm telling you, it's a picture of the excitement and the change in a man and a woman's life. When you actually get that water, you don't need the old water pot anymore. You don't need the old friends anymore. You don't need the old watering holes anymore. You don't need the old places anymore. Now that's repentance that you have to come to, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And repentance isn't about, I'm sorry. Repentance is about, we always get, well, repentance means that I'm sorry. No, repentance has nothing to do with you being sorry. Repentance means that you have changed the direction in your life. She's more excited about the Word of God than she was things of this world. What a, what a, what a, that is New Testament salvation. Now, the next thing, the ninth thing. And for as far as I'm concerned, this is the whole sermon right here. Then she goes and she tells everybody. Verse 28, the woman then left the water water pot and went her way into the city and saith unto the men, come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Not, is not this the Christ? Now, as I said, I think this, this one right here is the most important aspect of everything in this story. Verse 28 and 29 nails it as far as, uh, as, 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 as she did. You really get the life-changing salvation or just a Laodicean train wreck. Note, her past life became the focal point of her new life. In other words, the people saw a contrast. The problem with Christianity today, there is no contrast. You get saved and you go do the same things that the world, or you get saved and you go to a church that does the same thing the world does, and there has to be a difference in our lives. A contrast. Her past became the focal point of her new life. It was the source now of her real witness. But I want you to see, oh, she didn't tell them just what God will do for them. What a joke. So many people winning people to Christ are claiming to be soul winners go around telling everybody what God will do for them. This woman didn't do that. She told them what God had done for her. Her past life. Trained eye, you got it? Anybody see anything in here? Don't raise your hand. Anybody see anything here in this path I just read that ought to just jump out to you? Did you catch the fact that when she went into the city, it says she went to the men? This lady had a reputation in town. She's now had six guys on a running count. This gal obviously has a man issue. 
Here it comes. When she got saved and she's done with the world, the first place she goes is where her main issue is. And she lets them know. The men of the city versus the man that she just met at the well in verse 29. And she says, come and see a man which telleth me all things that ever I did. Well, let me just stop right there. There must have been more to her conversation with Christ than we got caught because they must have talked about a lot of things he didn't put down here. Because she's saying he told her about everything. We just got the one thing about the five husbands running on number six. Come and see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is this not the Christ? You see, a changed mind will always change your direction. So when she first gets saved, she goes first to the source of her problem, which was men. And she tells them, look guys, I'm not your party girl anymore. Don't call me. Don't come around. I met a man who gave me what I've been looking for all my life. And I now am saved, and I just want to come and tell you because I have deceived you. I have played the game with you. I have allowed you to use me. I have used you, and you are the source of my problem because I had a problem. When I found the water that satisfies, and I don't have that problem anymore, so boys, I'm out. You see? Well, verse 39 then says, I mean the word spread. This gal, you know, the contrast was the reputation she had before and the reputation she has now. All because she went to the source of her problem. You think that didn't get through the city? I know it did, because verse 39 says, And many of the Sumerians of that city believed on him and besought him. They were after him. And I'm telling you right now, it was because of the witness that God put into her life that changed her. And when she left her water pot back there, she finally found something that lasts. Now, that's what happens when you have a real Christian witness. Not, oh yes, oh yes, let me tell you about Jesus. Uh, Let me tell you what he'll do for you. There's people out there in their lives that need to see the witness and the power of God in your life of what he's doing with you. There's people out there who are losing their kids, having struggles with their kids. They need to see kids in your family that are doing what's right. That's the witness. It's a thing where it's a thing where it's your family or your marriage or whatever it may be. It's like last week, people looking for something that's real. And he said last week when he went down there that the the, Philist- the Philistines envied the blessings of God in his life. That's what the world ought to do. They ought to look at our lives and ought to envy because what you have is real. Real Christianity, a real family, a real marriage, real kids, all adds up to a real witness. Because people are looking for something real. And, you know, while I'm thinking about this, 
Very quickly, there's another great story that goes right along with this of a man getting saved that fits right in with this woman. And uh, turn with it quickly. It's back in Luke chapter 8. And you know the story. It's a simple story. And it'll just take me a few seconds to lay this out. That it says in verse 26, And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils a long time and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. Now, as you come through your Bible, Matthew chapter 8, I believe it is, and Mark chapter 5, they tell you the same story. When you get it all together, here's what you got. This man is a picture of an unsaved man, and he's got 12,000 devils in him. He's got great strength, so he's a picture of some unsaved guy on PCP. He cuts himself, so he's a man, an unsaved man or woman who's on the way to self-destruction. He cries a lot. Got emotional swings up and down. He's naked. Picture of an unsaved man, no covering. And he lives in the tombs. He constantly is hanging out with dead people, unsaved people, dead in trespasses of sin. Now, what happens? He meets Jesus. And he gets saved. Praise the Lord. And the Bible says immediately you see the evidence of a changed life. He didn't get saved and still smoke. He didn't get saved and still, uh, you know, do PCP or crack or whatever. He didn't get saved and still hang out with dead people in the tombs. No, 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 no. When he got saved, he didn't keep running around naked. There was a minister, an, an immediate change in his life. Verse 33 says that the, when he crashed the devils out of him, they went into a herd of swine and ran down into the ocean and were choked. The trained eye will see that's the first case of deviled ham in the Bible, but we didn't got time to preach that message this morning. Look at verse 35. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Clothed in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. You see, now he's got the mind of Christ. And at the time of our salvation, it will change the way we think. And if a man or a woman claim to be saved and there's no change of mind, something didn't go well at your salvation experience. That's the point of the doctrine of repentance. A change direction in your life based on a change of your mind. The way you think, the way you look at things, the way you see things, the way you understand things, the way you look at the world, all the things that you once love. Now, like the woman at the well, you leave your pot. And at the time of our salvation, if there is not a change of direction, based on our getting the right mind, we've deceived ourselves. Now, I know, I know that once you get saved, you're going to struggle. We all have struggles. I get it. I'm not saying the moment you get saved, all your problems are gone. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying before you got saved, you enjoyed your sin. After you got saved, you may still struggle with it, but you hate your sin. You know what that means? You've got to change mind. 
A chain direction doesn't mean you just perfectly get over it all the time. You struggle. You'll struggle with things all your life, but it just goes up to a higher level. Where a guy who just gets saved may struggle with whatever he struggles with, the big chunk that we don't struggle with. You're saved 10, 15 years. You know what your struggle is? You don't pray enough. You don't get in your Bible enough. But we always struggle. But it's the fact that before I got saved, I didn't care. We enjoyed the pleasure of sin for a season. But once you get saved, you hate it. Change mind based on a change direction. And at the time of salvation, if there's not a change in direction based on your right mind, as I said, you've deceived yourself. I don't care how often you come to church. I don't care what you tell your mom and dad. I don't care how mom and dad try to deceive themselves that, oh, my kids are okay. They just don't go to church. They're not involved in anything, but they're saved in your worst nightmare. That Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold. Behold. All things become new. You know why they're new? New direction in life based on a new mind. Now, look at this. Right salvation, right mind, right position. He's at the feet of Jesus. Now, look at this. Verse 35. When he gets into his right mind, oh, you got to see this. This is just like the woman in John 4. They do it. Now, now, when he gets in his right mind, they're afraid of him. Verse 36, when he was told to them, the men of the city, that he had gotten saved, they tried to drive him out of the city. Now, you better get this. As long as he was devil-possessed and running around naked and living in a tomb, no one laid anywhere down that they were afraid of him. He was just old crazy Joe who hung out at the tombs. But once he gets saved now, they want him out. And brother, when you get really saved, that's how the world should look at you. you it ought to want to get rid of you, but not nearly as much as you want to get rid of it. And when you don't, When he was possessed with the devil, he could stay. When he got possessed by God, he had to go. Now watch this. This is my point. Trying to tie it back to John 4 when she went down to the men. Verse 38 and 39. Now the men out of whom the devils were departed, now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. Return unto thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. Now, this guy is very thankful and he truly gets saved and there's a definite change in his world. So now he comes to Jesus and he says to him, Jesus, I, I, I want to go with you. I want to follow you. I want to tell everybody. I want to be one of your disciples. I, I want to go wherever you go. Be with you wherever you be. I, I want to do everything. I want to be, I want to win people to Christ and I want to tell people. He wants to learn it all. He wants to follow Jesus. Verse 39, Jesus says, no, no. I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to go back to your own house first. And tell them what God has done for you. 
his own house first, his family. You know why? Because that's where the biggest damage was done. I've seen guys get saved all the time. Their families are wrecked. Kids won't come to church. I guess this guy, but this guy kid didn't want to go to church. They didn't want to be part of anything. They didn't want to be in any ministry. They didn't want to go to church. They didn't want to be the Bible. They didn't want anything. That dad was a terrible example to them of what a dad should be biblically. And so Jesus said, look, you go back first where you did the most damage. You go back to your family. And just like the woman at the well, and here in Luke chapter 8, when you get saved, when I get saved, you need to start where the real damage was done. Trying to pretend it didn't happen and you're going to go out and be the biggest soul winner in the world is a joke. It has to start in your home. The woman, she had a man problem. So after she gets a new heart and a new mind, she runs down into the city and says to the men, I had a great thing happen to me and I'm no longer the woman you once knew to be. And I want you to know that I met a man that changed my life. All the men in this city didn't change my life. And that's my fault. But I met a man that did. And so I'm telling you right now, I'm done with it. You always have to go where the source of the problem was. And this guy here had 12,000 devils in him. He had to go back to his home. I don't know what he did. <clears throat> if he would have asked me what he did, I'd say, hey, there's five things you've got to do to restore your family. And he would sit down with them. He says, son, daughters, family, I'm not the same old guy I used to be. And I know I've done this and I've done that, but let me show you what we're going to do. John chapter 4, one of the greatest stories in the Bible. That not only shown you God's great plan of salvation, but it shows us <clears throat> the evidence of a changed life. It just isn't about you're saved. You're going to deal with people from all walks of life, and your 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 your, your whole world ought to be such in shape that you can point to any part of it and say, you know what, God will do this for your family. God will do this for your marriage. God will do this for your life. Last week, <clears throat> we celebrated my 50 years, <clears throat> our 50 years of being in the ministry. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> you know, I thought a lot about it. My dad died about this time, and it was when God really began to play in my heart. And I told you the story about going to church and everything, but <clears throat> I never gave you the other part of the story. God had been working in my world when my dad died. Uh, I, you know, my dad was the greatest dad in the world as far as I was concerned. I was the worst son, but he was the greatest dad. He sacrificed, as my mom did. My sister knows. They sacrificed for both of us. He worked 27 years in Republic Steel. He was a hard worker. He took a secondary job at a gas station or this or that. to do. My mom worked two or three jobs just to keep everything afloat in the family. And I was a terrible son. Uh, and, uh, you know, when he died, God began to use that in my world. And I had been thinking all these things through. So it was, I'll never forget it. It was, it was on a Sunday night that I, had, I went forward after Sunday morning. 
And that Friday, I worked at the Hoover Company. And we made vacuum cleaners, washing machines, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I, I worked there for a number of years, and, and uh, uh, I was just like everybody else. I'd laugh at the dirty jokes and tell some too, and just, you know, and just, and just, I was part of the whole world system. I left on a Friday night, turmoil inside, because I knew nothing was real. And I knew that uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, had no clue. I just knew that I was in turmoil. I went to church that morning, and Tommy Thomas, the preacher, died in the pulpit. That really shook me up. I went back to church that night, or it, it might have been the, uh, the next weekend, but it was that Sunday night. But I went back there, and that's when I went forward, and I just laid it all on the altar to God. And I want to tell you something, and I'm not saying that I knew any of this back then. I knew nothing. But I knew enough to know that at that factory, I was a terrible testimony to those people. And I knew that that was my place that I had to start. Now, you couldn't get in until like 10 to 7. We started work at 7, maybe quarter to 7. But you know how people are. I'm sure it's true at Ford and GM. Before you could get in and the gates open, there's a crowd of people out there waiting to get in. That would always seem stupid to me. I could see getting a crowd waiting to get out of work, but I never understood a crowd waiting to get into work. But they were there. And so I, I, I put in my mind, I've got, to, I've got to make this right. And I left on Friday with no Bible, no nothing, living like the world, but struggling on the inside. And I showed up Monday morning with a New Testament and a pocket full of tracts. And I got there when that crowd was waiting, and I stood in front of them, most of them I knew, and I said, folks, you all know me. I just want to tell you, I got my life right with God this last weekend, just last night. And I'm sorry for I've not been a testimony to you. And I would never want anybody to die and go to hell because of something that I did. So I'm telling you right now, I'm sorry. I apologize. I've got a gospel tracts here I'd like to give everybody. If anybody wants to know how to be saved, I would like to show you. But I'm just telling you, I wanted to tell you first because this is where... I've done the most damage as my testimony of not having one. And then I drove a fork truck, and I went around to all my places that morning when I dribbled and got off my truck and went to those sheet metal operators, and I told them that I had gotten right with God. A lot of them were happy. I met a lot of nice Christian people that were really happy. But a lot, a lot of people thought I was nuts and out of my mind. And you know what? They were right. I was out of the old mind, but I was in the new mind. But you've got to start where your issues are or you'll never solve them you got to look at face on you can't sidestep the issues like she tried to do he kept her he kept her honest and I just try to tell everybody what she tried to tell everybody had no idea this story was even in the Bible would have never known about the maniac of Gadaria I just knew about the maniac at Hoover Company but I did the same thing she did and probably what most of you have done and probably what every real Christian has to do, I just simply said to the people that I did the most damage to, come and see a man which told me all the things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And that's where I began my witness. And I haven't always been the best witness. I haven't always done everything that's right. I'm not portraying that at all, but I am telling you this. The difference between now and then is back then I enjoyed sin for a season. Now I hate it because it stops me from being everything that God wants me to be. John chapter 4.
the salvation at a woman at the well. I hope you never look at that story the same way again. Let's pray. Father, we thank